Welcome to the HR Happy Hour show with Steve and Trish. Trish, we have a great conversation today, a global conversation about what's happening in businesses, what's happening in work, what's happening around mental health in the workplace in partnership with our friends at Oracle. But before we get into that conversation and welcome our guest, Trish, since we're having a global dialogue today, here's the question. It's straight up simple. What has been your favorite country outside of the U.S. that you visited? That is such a difficult question. My no, favorite. That's the easiest I have... question I've asked in a year. Come on. I know, I know. I like all these countries so much. No, my favorite remains uh, England because there's just something about it. When I step off the plane from this happened the very first time that I went to, you know, years and years ago, but I step off the plane at Heathrow and it's just like, <sighs> I just feel at home. I just feel, and now having been there and it's like you do what the locals do for so many years. Like I have my favorite haunts and my favorite spots and my favorite people. And I miss it terribly. And that's actually, that's where my dad's family is from. So maybe that's why I feel so good choice. Here, but good choice. That's my favorite. And literally like my sister and I have talked about this. The second that travel is open for us to go, we are on a plane. I don't care. I don't care what it costs. I'm going <laughs> To London, so that's it. That's my Good. answer. Okay. <laughs> How about you? It's a tough one. We've talked about it a ton on this show. I probably pick China just because it's so different, and I've been there four times or five times, and uh, well, you know, for work, but got to do some other fun things while we've been there a number of times. And uh, I think of everywhere I've been, the nicest people have been to me has been in China for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, and then neither one of us mentioned Spain, but Barcelona. Oh my gosh, Spain. for the food alone. Yeah. But wow. Uh, Good stuff. Yeah. We'll ask our guests about what countries uh, he likes. Let's welcome him to the show now. And he's fact, I think he's in London, which you I can know, maybe I'm share so some envious. of your, your love from Yunnan. <laughs> our guest today is Yaz Dalal <laughs> from Oracle. He is the uh, head of strategy for HCM cloud applications for the EMEA region. Yaz has spent the past 20 years working in the human capital space, helping companies around the world use digital tools to attract, engage, and retain the best talent. He speaks regularly on trends and innovation in human resources and the employee experience and is honored to have developed strong relationships with human capital and HR leaders across the Fortune Global 500. Yes, currently holds up human capital management, HCM cloud application strategy in Europe, Middle East, and Africa for Oracle, creating powerful employee experiences and providing future ready HR for their customers. Yes, welcome to the show. How are you today? Thanks, Steve. Thanks, Trish. I am very well. I'm happy to be here. And the sun is shining in London, so that uh, makes me happy. It's a few days a year that we get sunshine over here, so we have to relish it. Great, great. Yaz, do you want to weigh in? Just what's the country you like visiting? You've been all over the world. We know this, and we're going to get into a lot of that in the next few minutes. But yeah, what's, what's one you just love to go to? What country is my favorite one to go to? It's a hard one to say because I spend a lot of uh, my job building relationships internally and externally in a lot of countries. And so I don't want to play favorites, but I have to admit, (laughs) um, I was living in Singapore with my family for eight years. And one of the reasons we moved to Europe was because I asked for a transfer to Paris. It's my favorite city in the world. It's the one that I've probably been to the most. Used to be a a lot more fluent in French than I am today, but it's it's a fantasy country for me. Of course, Oracle said, we can move you, but it won't be France. And they put me in London, which is close (laughs) enough. So that's why I'm here. Close enough. Love it. That's good. And you know what? You mentioned Singapore. Um, I love Singapore. That that was a wonderful place to visit. Although so, so hot. I had no idea what I was in for. I forget what month I was. Was that like May maybe that we went to an event there, Steve? It doesn't matter what month you were there. I'll tell you what the weather was. It was 90% humidity 
and it was 78 degrees all day because that's yep. the weather every single day and it rained for an hour that afternoon because that happens every single day as well. I'm sure that was the case yeah it was really good though but anyway yeah I love world travel I'm so anxious for that to happen again someday but we're glad to have you coming from London my favorite city so yeah as if you could if you don't mind maybe just tell us a little bit about your role uh you know covering strategy for the whole EMEA it's a giant region lots of different places lots of different countries lots of different business types of businesses and uh, economies maybe just give us a little overview of what you kind of look after uh, in that role sure well i think uh hopefully many of your audience is aware but just in case oracle is a very large technology company and we do both hardware technology, but also software. And within software, we have some pretty famous HR software platforms. So people who have heard of PeopleSoft or uh, Oracle eBusiness Suite. I mean, I used eBusiness Suite pretty much all of my career, the last 25 years, different companies. Same, Same right? I have and, implemented uh, that thing and bought that thing more times than... <laughs> it works. And, it, and, it, and at the time when it was developed, that was, that was state of the art. And about uh, eight or nine years ago, we started rebuilding all of our software for the cloud. So not just for HR, but for uh, ERP, for supply chain, um, our CRM platforms, everything sort of rebuilt for the cloud from scratch. And my job at Oracle is basically to tell our story. So I'm the head of go-to-market strategy for Oracle Cloud HCM for this part of the world. And it's an exciting job. It's probably the most fun I've ever had at work uh, because we have an amazing team of people around the world who build our product. And it's essentially the ability for employers to take care of their people and for their people to have an amazing experience at work through uh, a cloud technology system that's fast, that's mobile, that's intuitive. So Steve and Trish, basically my job is to tell our story, to help our people internally uh, understand our value proposition to the market and to tell that story externally, a little bit like I am right now. We've got an amazing offering that we think is the best in the world for helping great companies do the best for their people and for their people to do their best work because they are using technology that removes obstacles, that makes their employee journey as seamless as possible. And to do it as much as possible uh, with state-of-the-art tools that we're used to in our personal lives. So everything that we imagine our phones can do, uh, we imagine that our enterprise software should be able to do. You know, if I've got a camera, I should be able to take a picture of my receipt and the expenses just get done. If I uh, have a mobile phone in my pocket and I've got to do an approval for a promotion or an offer letter, I should just be able to do that at the click of a button. And that's what we do. And if I could talk to Siri and Alexa, then I should be able to talk to my employer in the same way, uh, just by lifting up my phone and providing feedback on someone just by speaking into a, a messaging app or querying for, um, you know, get me Steve Bose's phone number. I should just be able to say that into a messaging app. And so we sync with WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger and Slack and all of these platforms to enable thousands of companies around the world to, to give their employees that kind of um, access and, and service. So that's really my job is to help tell that story uh, in more basic terms. It's defining what our messages are for the right customer segments and helping uh, amazing companies adopt our products. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it's it's something I think is near and dear to Steve and I just because 
you know, Steve has actually worked for Oracle over the years. Um, I have been a customer for, I would say most of the jobs I had, I was actually an Oracle uh, customer. So it's exciting for me to now be kind of on the other side of it from an analyst perspective and seeing and hearing what you all are doing, um, especially over these last say seven or eight years, uh, as you mentioned, you know, you rebuilt the whole thing eight years ago. So it's been uh, amazing. I, I always joke with Steve, I said, it's almost enough to make me want to go back to HR to actually get to use some of the some of the advancements that you all have have actually put into place. Yeah, it's been well. I will say that um, we take a lot of inspiration from, as I mentioned, consumer technology, and and this mentality. You know, my mom has this mentality. She's never used a PC, so her first interaction with tech was her first smartphone. However many years ago that was, right? So there's words that she literally doesn't know the definition of. She doesn't know what it means when we say save it in a folder. She's never had to. <laughs> interact with seriously a desktop uh, UI of any kind, but her expectation of tech is extremely high and she's, you know, 70 plus, whatever she imagines her phone can do, it should just be able to do. And when it doesn't, then she experiences a frustration. Yeah. So I think for us, we take a lot of inspiration from that, but then at the same time, also what our customers expect. And one of the things that, you know, we're super proud of is 80% of all of our innovation originates with a customer request or a customer idea. And that's pretty significant because at the heart of it, we, we don't exist unless we have amazing customers and they're not going to stick with us. And we have more than 4,000 now around the world. Uh, they're not going to stick with us if, if they don't feel like they're being listened to. And, and that's probably the most important thing that we do. And, and what's important for those companies is the benefit that they can then cascade to their people. And we always tell our, our customers, your people should think of you as the innovator. They don't even need to know it's Oracle. We don't put our name on the software. It's not, and some of our competitors do that. We, there's close to 50 million employees of our customers around the world who get their pay slip from an Oracle system or are managing their, their employee records or their people through an Oracle system that don't even necessarily know that it's Oracle. They attribute all that innovation to their employer, and, and we're happy for that to be the case. Yeah, so that's a really interesting perspective. We could probably take another whole show talking about like that approach, because that is definitely different than a lot different. of the other competitors in the space. But one of the things uh, we wanted to have you on to talk about was for that, the month of February here, we've been really doing a ton on mental health, both on this podcast, both on our video show, both on our, our, our you mentioned Alexa, our Alexa show. We've been focusing really, really heavily on mental health largely inspired by the AI at work study that Oracle conducted and released late last year, which had a primary focus on mental health. And one of the interesting angles or um, set of findings from the research around mental health in the workplace and how different um, people are dealing with it is there's some differences around the world. Like everybody around the world pretty much, I think, is impacted by the, has been impacted by the pandemic, but it, the impacts have been felt differently, of course, around the world. Now you're, you've got a great global perspective, probably one of the best global perspectives of anybody we've had on the show in a long time. I'd love for you maybe to just maybe share some of your thoughts and observations of how some of your customers and the organizations you're, you're dealing with have kind of navigated through the pandemic and maybe some differences you've perhaps have seen between certain places and other places. Uh, and then maybe we can dive into a couple of the specific uh, findings from the research. Sure, happy to do that. Let me, let me start by maybe saying something that I think is globally true. 2020 was the most stressful year ever. And 
whether you believe that that impacts your mental health or not, I think globally people agree that stress is a real thing and, and that it has an impact. And the reason why I'm using that word uh, is one of the most interesting differences, and especially from an American perspective, is that the concept of mental health still has, and it might feel old fashioned to some people, still has a negative connotation in some cultures. And specifically the admission that you might have mental health impact, and I'm even being careful myself to not say issues, suggests that you know it's more of like a 1950s, 60s um, notion of you must be crazy, you know something's wrong with you, yeah. which we know today is not the case. We recognize that mental health is is a ubiquitous affliction, but in some cultures, and I would say you know um, some parts of Europe, Southern Europe, Eastern Europe. Uh, some parts of the Middle East, um, some parts of Africa, and, and certainly in Asia, there's still this mentality. So I think a lot of companies are hesitant to sometimes address it because by ascribing it to their employees, it might suggest something that's, that's taken negatively, if you see what I mean. So I think it's important to, to, to acknowledge that. Um, it makes me wonder whether some of the data we see is representing that as well. You know, if we look at the, the survey that we did, we had surveyed 12,000 people in 11 countries around the world in that research study. So what we see is, first of all, the mental health crisis definitely uh, is global in response to COVID, uh, but we also see that it impacts people very differently in different countries. So based on the feedback we saw from the survey, for instance, it shows that India and China feel like they're hit the hardest in terms of uh, mental health. And conversely, in very quote unquote developed countries, you know, the big industrials, Italy, Germany, Japan, they report seeing less of an impact. You know, I think in India, 89%, uh, UAE, which is um, Dubai, Abu Dhabi, and, and, and those states, 86%, China, 83%. And, and I think you know, or my colleague Emily would have said in the US, it was 81%, saying that they were negatively impacted mental health wise. In fact, um, in China and in India, also said that they were the most burned out from overwork as a result of COVID-19. And those are, I mean, that's a massive chunk of the world. So over 40% of respondents from China, over 30% of respondents from India saying that they're just burned out from, from the extra effort. But then in those developed nations like Italy, Italy reported the lowest number of people uh, experiencing a negative impact on their mental health. I think it was 65%. So it's still over half but it's not as, as massive as some of the, the other countries. Um, and then the least was Germany. Workers in Germany were the least likely to, to report that 2020 was their most stressful year ever. It's about 52%. And I mentioned Japan earlier, uh, less than a third of uh, the Japanese respondents said um, that they have not experienced difficulties at all, working remotely or you know, being away from the office, collaborating virtually. And on the flip side, almost all of the, the Indian respondents said, this has been hard, 96% uh, in India. So I think there's some major differences around the world. Again, I think uh, it is important to acknowledge the, that um, recognition of mental health is also at different stages in different countries. All that said, when we look uh, in that research study at what help people are willing to take, and our research was specifically about AI at work and how it can support what was really interesting was 
those same two countries, China and India, were the most open to having a robot. And for, by the way, for this purpose, <laughs> when I say robot, I just mean a form of technology, some form of automated tech, AI-based. So we'll refer to that as a robot. Over 90% of Indian respondents, almost 100% of Chinese respondents saying, I would be open to have some sort of therapy or counseling from a robot. On the flip side, uh, hesitation in Western Europe, just under 70% uh, of folks in France uh, or in Trisha's favorite country, the UK, uh, saying that they were probably uh, likely to look to a robot for, for support. So that's still over two thirds. And so I think generally the global trend is, is towards that. And I think it's not so much of a surprise anymore. It was only a year and a half, two years ago that we had done a research finding that said that most people would be willing to take instructions from a robot. And people were shocked. And then we got a lot of press about it. Now it's two years later. I don't think people are shocked. And, and, and I was telling my wife this the other day. Why is it not shocking? Because it's reasonable. If I, can, if I can confide in a robot, first of all, they're awesome listeners. They're not going to judge me. It's a no judgment zone. And weirdly, we, we have a higher level of trust in something that feels a bit anonymous. You know, it's one of the reasons why people love to self-diagnose on WebMD. Probably should go to a doctor if you're really concerned about something, but they, they ascribe some sort of trust to WebMD because it's, it's this um, tech-based anonymous expert. So in the same way, I think we're doing the same thing with, with technology. And you, know, you mentioned you have a show on Alexa. We're doing something really weird as people with Siri, with Alexa, with Google, which is we're starting to ascribe human emotion to them, even though they don't do it back. My children, because I give them a look if they don't say please and thank you when they speak to someone, they say please and thank you to Alexa, which makes me giggle. <laughs> um, and, I do uh, too. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if you've seen some of these videos on TikTok of people whispering to Alexa some funny instructions and Alexa whispers back to them. But we're starting to think of these bots as kind of uh, humanoid and ascribing human uh, emotion to them. So that helps with trust. And that, I think all the more reason why one of the ways we can manage some of these massive changes around mental health is through technology. Is that gonna happen overnight? I think organizations need to ramp up these conversations, I think they need to address it with their people. They need to acknowledge first uh, that there are, you know, these negative externalities that are having an impact on their folks. And then also uh, show a commitment to what they're going to deliver to support them, to help them. Yes, I think a big part of that, that message too, for folks who are um, in larger companies, global, multinationals, et cetera, right, have to really look at data like this to help them understand like the just to make sure that they understand that the ways to approach uh, support, ways to approach uh, supporting people with these challenges are going to be a little bit different depending on where you are in the world. And to have, as you said, yeah, as a technology, uh, having technology or access to technology that's flexible enough to meet those people where they want to be met. And then other resources to maybe meet people who are maybe not as comfortable with technology. But I thought it was so interesting when the data showed that people in China and India at the, at the highest level, 97%, 92%, uh, 97% is almost everyone, honestly, like open to having a, a robot or some form of technology as a therapist or counselor. And that some of that, I guess, could be cultural, right? I, I mentioned, I like China is one of my favorite places to visit. The first time I ever went there, 
I was shocked to be in a place where people were more attached to their smartphones than even in the US that was in China. At least that was my observation. I don't know if that's really true or not, but it just seemed that way. So they're just from across the board, from the youngest child really to, you know, senior citizens, right? Everybody always constantly attached to their phones. So I don't know, maybe that's part of it. Like that's part of their willingness to embrace that kind of- I think that's part of it. I think that's part of it. And I think two interesting things about that particular country and, and the combination of openness to technology and at the same time, recognition of human need. I think one of the, one of the risks we have in the West is that we, we go full throttle down a path of progress, often uh, led by or supported by technology. And we expect the culture to morph along with that progress and, and regardless of how fast it's accelerating. And I think what's really remarkable about um, some of these countries, especially India and China, which are so large and have these very deep, frankly, much older cultures um, than what we have in the West is that they can go even faster down the path of technological progress without dragging the culture with it and instead maintaining. And I'll, and I'll give you a good example from, from both end, both poles of that. I remember, and this is a few years ago now, being the, the, the one American in, in a workshop that we were doing, uh, this is before I was at Oracle, uh, for a group of HR leaders in um, Shanghai. And I had very dutifully downloaded probably a year earlier WeChat onto my phone, which I had. Um, and and, and you know, for, for folks listening who don't know what WeChat is, it's basically the mobile platform um, of China. It's kind of like a 2021 version of what AOL would have become uh, if the AOL from 1993 existed today. A walled garden internet where you literally can do anything and everything. It's Facebook meets Twitter meets Tinder meets Uber, probably. Yeah. All at one. And LinkedIn. And I, I, uh, I was there to network and, and uh, I, we all went to the tea table and they stood around in a circle around this table and stared at their phones for a moment and looked up at each other, looked back down, looked up, and then everyone just started talking. And I was lost. <laughs> and it turned out they were using a really common function on WeChat, which is uh, friend radar. And if everyone has it on, it just automatically pops up their profiles and directionally you can see who's who. You know, by the way, LinkedIn, if you're listening, it'd be a pretty good <laughs> Right, that'd be a great thing. <laughs> and so they didn't need to introduce themselves. They already knew who was who and who they wanted to talk to. And they just, on the flip side, now talk about you know, maintaining traditional cultural things. One of the, the weirdest moments for me, again, as an ignorant American visiting Chinese customers in China, is walking through an office in the middle of the day on my way to a meeting with, with uh, probably a chief HR officer and the lights are dim on the floor and I see someone sleeping at their desk. And I think to myself, man, that person's in trouble. They get caught. And then the next person was also sleeping at their desk. And as we walk through the floor, there's about 50 people sleeping at their desks because that's normal, because that's encouraged, because everybody knows a power nap 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and you're going to be full of energy again. Mm -hmm. It's culturally normative. So I think it's a good example of moving really fast on the tech side and maintaining some cultural norms on the other side is, is really important. Uh, and I think that's why they're so open to 
leveraging tech to address things that they know will make them better, make them better employees, but you know, also happier employees. Happier employees are more productive. We all know that. I think those are good stories too for any HR practitioners who are listening or any business, you know, just business leaders here who might be part of multinational companies, because that was always a struggle. I think when I was in HR was we knew um, intuitively there were differences culturally. We didn't always have data to back up exactly what that looked like. And so while this is one small slice of that, again, I can imagine, you know, sitting in that CHRO chair now seeing data like this and being able to say, okay, how now, how does that impact how we here at the corporate headquarters work with these employees in these various countries and support them in a way that's comfortable for them instead of comfortable for us? Because I think that's, you know, we're kind of raised to treat others as we want to be treated. And that's not necessarily what's going to work in many of these countries, which I think, you know, this data that you went over clearly demonstrates, right? The other thing I would just be interested in um, from your perspective is, you know, we, we hear a lot, we're comparing, you know, the US and China and India, some really big countries with lots of population to some that are fairly tiny. Um, I always think about too, you know, if you were to compare Italy to a state in the United States, right, population wise, I wonder if we're not considering even our own differences in cultural approaches to things, right? Because people in California might have a completely different need technologically from someone in New York state or Alabama or, you know, so are there any, you know, you're someone who's thinking strategy, big picture, obviously on a global scale. Is that something that Oracle thinks about also within some of these larger countries, different cultural differences in that regard? Sure. So um, I think it's, it's funny that you say this because I was having this conversation recently about Northern England. You know, the UK is actually uh, multiple countries. It's Scotland, Wales, England, and, and Northern Ireland. But even within England, there are so many regional differences, not just the accents. I think there's about <laughs> 5,000 accents. Um, but between, you know, metropolitan and rural, the distance from the capital, I think in any country um, is usually a marker, but it's, it's often, it's, it's geographic, north, south, east, west. And we definitely, I think culturally at Oracle, I can, I can speak from our own organizational standpoint. You know, we're 140,000 employees. We're in 200 countries. And I'm very lucky uh, to, to get to work with, with people from multiple countries every single day. Some of the, th- some of the examples are, are famous. You know, um, we have certain countries or markets where August is an entire vacation <laughs> every year. One of the things that, that I've noticed is in most countries that are either majority Christian or have a headquarters in a, in a majority Christian country, the last two weeks of December are just off, not your personal vacation. But within countries, to answer your question, I think it's usually about distance from capital and rural versus metropolitan. And where, where we are seeing some major effects and our customers are talking about it a lot is suddenly those workers who thought they had the cool job in the middle of the downtown are the most adversely affected. And if you are, and if you think about the the stereotype, because it is going to be generalization, um, but if you think about in general, the workers who are in the city, it's the young up-and-comers, maybe they don't have families yet, and it's the the really senior because they can afford the big place in, 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 in town. 
Uh, and those are the folks who are adversely affected by this. Those are the ones who are now trying to figure out, wait a second, if we're not going back to the office, what on earth am I doing living 10 blocks from the office? I don't need to be here at all. And recognizing, uh, especially if I think about in our day-to-day -day work here at Oracle, that I'm, I wish I lived where I thought I wished that I lived in, in central London and actually I'm in, uh, in the Northern suburbs. I love that now. Meanwhile, I have colleagues who live 10 blocks from the office who, uh, depending on, on the lockdown rules, they can't really leave their apartment. They don't have a balcony. They're not really going outside. You know? And I think that's a global, global thing. So it, it's not just about the geographical differences within a country, but I think it's, it's this. It's urban versus rural. It's distance from the capital. What level of career you're in. You know, one of the other things that we saw in our research study, and I I don't know how much you've already talked about this in, in the other podcast you did with Emily, but the folks who are saying that they're the most adversely affected by all of this are the CEOs. It's the C-level. And the next group that's, that's reacting the same way is Gen Z. And I like to think that those two demographics have way more in common than any other two demos in the workforce. And the reason for that, and I'd love to hear what, what the two of you think about this, I have a theory that our that we can predict our adoption of technology by looking back at what the wealthiest classes and what the senior executive demographic enjoys as their perks and assume and assume that those perks will soon be provisioned by technology and allow us to benefit from similar perks. So to give you an example, uh, everyone in white collar up to 50 or 60 years ago had a secretary. And now we don't, we have Microsoft Office and a smartphone, right? Every, every C-level person 30 or 40 years ago had a team of MBA analysts. And now we've got um, you know, data visualization, Microsoft Excel and pivot tables. Mm -hmm. So what's the next level? Well, if you're a C-level of a major company, you might open the office door and yell to someone who's then gonna fulfill whatever order you just gave. We're gonna start doing that into our phone. It might be a query uh, to get data out of a system. It might be a request to take an action. So I kind of feel like we're headed in that direction. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that Gen Z and the CEOs are, are feeling like they are uh, the most burned out. Gen Z is the most likely to turn to robots for supports. It's, they're 105% more likely to talk to a robot uh, over their manager about stress and anxiety versus baby boomers, for instance. And I think from a CEO perspective, uh, I just want to get the right quote here for you. In our research, 53% of C-suite execs who responded said that they're struggling with mental health issues in the workplace um, more than their employees. That's interesting. Not that I'm struggling, but I'm struggling more than my workers who, you know, by the way, are making a lot less of money than I do. So I think that that's an interesting commonality uh, between those two generations. I would agree with you. I would, I, I, would also maybe consider that for me, your C-suite level, those really high level execs, as well as your Gen Z, I think my theory would be they are also the least connected to the organization because when you're at the C-level, you know, you people just stop coming to you, right? Um, I think in my career, I've always found success actually by trying to befriend those people, right? Because no one's coming in and just having a normal conversation with them, right? You have to have a meeting and it's planned and everything's scripted and whatever. So 
just in a in a day-to-day like connection with other colleagues, I think they're they're less connected as well as Gen Z. They're newer to the workforce and they haven't made those strong bonds, right? So if you're Gen X or a boomer, you've been in the organization or you've been in the work world long enough, you've got some really deep, deep connections to each other. And so maybe there's a little bit of that. I think also Gen Z, uh, Gen X, like me, or even boomers, like we were kind of taught you just swallow your emotions, right? You don't talk about it. And I think that goes for in any country, really. Um, there is, you mentioned at the top of the show, there's a little bit of a stigma to this, right? Of sort of saying you have a problem. Um, and I would also say, I just heard a podcast on NPR the other day, uh, This American Life, and they were talking about secrets and how so many people will even have a therapist and yet keep secrets from their therapist. So (laughs) what is encouraging though to me about technology and kind of all the data that you're sharing and all the work that you're doing there at Oracle is that for me, it's, it's very promising if we're willing to talk to a robot or to some sort of AI enabled um, technology about our secrets, because if we're afraid to tell anyone our deepest, darkest worries or other things, you cannot get better. You, you know, and, and again, pandemic affects us all in so many different ways. You know, if you're going through, I don't know, raising children, having teenagers, uh, sending kids to college, worrying about money, if you're hormonal, if you're right, there's so many other factors that impact our mental well-being day to day and it's like a little bit of a roller coaster sometimes and so to me I'm just really excited to hear about some of the technological advances you all have made to support employees of all levels and to hopefully build more connection between those C-level or really high-level executives to each other to uh, maybe other colleagues that they don't have and to help Gen Z kind of fit in because they maybe not have had enough time in the workplace to build those connections. I don't know, Steve, do you kind of see that as well? I know you yeah, talked to a I, lot I, of different organizations. We've been too. diving into this data for a while now in different ways. And it's, it's, I, it continues to fascinate me. And even something, as you just mentioned about if, if, if one generation, or maybe it's a country, or maybe it's a, it's a place in the organization, whatever is a hundred percent more likely to turn to technology in support of their mental health and well-being, you can also, I think, read that as if those technologies are not available or not made readily available to the employees, then they're not turning to anyone, probably, because right. if they're if they're that Maybe. much more willing to use technology or prefer to use technology, then organizations really do uh, really do have a, an opportunity here and a challenge to step up and try to support them where they're at, whether it's in China or it's their Gen Z workers or it's even their their C-suite leaders. Totally agree. And Trish, I love that you use the word connections so many times. Um, we, we're redoing our employee directory. By the way, in HR software, theoretically, the employee directory part of the software should be the most boring part of it, right? Because all it is is your record. It's, you know, I'm Steve Bose, my phone number, my title, my boss, and, you know, the confidential part, my comp, and my performance rating. That's your HR record. That's the employee directory. Funny secret that's not going to be secret now is uh, at Oracle, I always joke with our teams internally, the number one most used app, non-productivity app, uh, you know, so outside of Outlook and Excel, at Oracle is our employee directory. You have 140,000 people. At minimum, I got to know how to contact you. But because it also has a picture and crucially your job level and hierarchy, 
It also tells you where you stand when you're about to go into a meeting, who are you going to deal with? Anyway, so we're relaunching that and we're calling it Connections because we want to take that employee directory, which became such a useful tool for us to know where we stand in a meeting or who we're going to be interacting with, et cetera, to also say, leverage this to figure out if you're a senior person, what's going on in your organization and the kind of people you have, but also to figure out how to get to where you want to go, you know? So then it becomes kind of a networking tool. It becomes a way to explore. We want people to bring their whole selves to work. We keep saying that. And so now we want to do that where people can opt in to say, you know, by the way, here's my passions. I'm also a surfer. You know, I'm also a cook or I'm also a hiker or I also like to give back and to just promote as much or as little as you like uh, so that people can see what's okay to share. You know, um, a, a close colleague of mine is neurodiverse. She's got dyslexia. And it's really helpful uh, that people know that about her because nobody now pauses when she stumbles on a word. You just kind of gloss over it. Oh yeah, that's her. Let's keep going. And it gives permission to everyone else to, you know, everyone's, I always tell my kids, all humans are the same. We're perfectly balanced. For every strength you have, you have an equivalent weakness, you know, which by the way, when you meet someone who's an amazing virtuoso in something, you got to wonder what's really lacking in that person somewhere (laughs) else uh, to make up for it. But, but if that's true for all of us, then there should be no stigma in revealing where you are different. I wouldn't call it a weakness, just I'm different in this way. So I think going back to my point about what's available to the super wealthy or to the super senior should become democratized. Do you guys watch the show Billions? Mm-hmm. I've seen it. Yeah. You've seen it, right? What's the weirdest role in that hedge fund? They have an in-house therapist and she's making a million dollars a year because her job is to keep all those hedge fund managers performing optimally. <laughs> by helping them handle their issues. And she does it during the work day. And sometimes she'll call them in because she notices that they made a dumb trade. Now, that's a pretty luxurious perk, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't call it a perk. It's deliberate. They're trying to get maximum efficiency out of their workers. I think that's the direction that we're heading in. We have to remove the stigma out of, of seeking help, seeking coaching, automate it, because I don't think companies can afford a $5 million a year in-house therapist. <laughs> um, and, and make it normative for people to access a resource like that. And, and I will say, uh, so that I'm not just preaching, um, that many companies, and I know especially in the US, it's very normal for companies to provide some form of counseling for free as their benefits package. And a, a few years ago, um, in my family, we had uh, some trauma and we, got some advice that you, you, know, you guys need to talk through what you guys have just gone through. And uh, talking to my, my HR person at the time, she said, you know, we do have this service, which I've always known. Every company I've ever worked at said, there's this 1-800 number and you get six free sessions. You can talk about whatever you want. And we availed of it. And uh, it was useful. And I'm saying, I'm saying this because I think we don't talk about this stuff enough. And so then we feel like it's stigmatized. It shouldn't be. Right. If you go through something like all of us literally are going through right now, it's okay to say you need help. It's okay to seek that help. And especially if your company is offering it to you for free, it's kind of silly if you don't take that help because it's there for you to be better and for the company to have an employee who's functioning optimally, you know, and hopefully they're not paying $5 million a year for it. Um, But I, I think, I think, 
we need to head in that direction. I think it'll be different stages and paces, uh, different countries and cultures around the world, but I hope that that becomes very normal. Yes, I think that's a great kind of way to uh, summarize and, and kind of conclude the, this look. Uh, honestly, just this month-long look we've had mm-hmm. at mental health in the workplace across various dimensions. And just, I'm, I hope we've done a, a little bit of a, a part too on our side of making it okay to talk about more and sharing as much as we can across our platforms and our networks as well. It's been very important to me too. Uh, you know, I'm glad, Yaz, thank you so much for joining in the conversation and sharing your your perspective, especially your global perspective, which I think is really needed uh, as well. And uh, super conversation. And um, I've been just really glad we've been able to kind of try to shed some light on this data, the report, but just the issue in general over the last month or so. Well, thank you very much, Steve and Trish. And and Trish, when you said that you uh, stepped off the plane at Heathrow, I immediately started thinking of Miley Cyrus' uh, party in the USA. <laughs> <laughs> it, starts, it starts with a similar line, um, but you stepped off at Heathrow, which is using Oracle Cloud HCM. So that's the last plug I'll make uh, there, but uh, we're very proud to have love you. love that. I love awesome. that. Well, good stuff. We'll uh, once again link to the Oracle AI at Work research. It's all out on the Oracle HCM site. It's all there. It's all free. There's great data there, great uh, reports, great analyses, great recommendations as well. So we'll we'll link out to that. And once again, thank our friends at Oracle for all their support. Yes, Dalal, thank you so much. Great to see you again. Hope to see you again soon somewhere in the world when we can when that can happen. That would be awesome. Oh, all right. You. Thank you, Trish. Good. All right. Uh, for our guest, Yaz Dalal, for Trish McFarlane, my name is Steve Bose. Thank you so much for listening to the HR Happy Hour Show. We will see you next time. And bye for now.